Hello and welcome to Teaching Python. This is episode 77, The Power of Bots in the Computer Science Classroom. My name's Sean Tiber. I'm a coder who teaches. And my name's Kelly Schuster-Paredes, and I'm a teacher who codes. And this week, we're joined by Tom Lowers from BirdBrain Technologies and a fellow CMU alum like myself. So a bit of a, a Pittsburgh connection there. We're going to try not to geek out too much about our favorite pizza <laughs> places in Squirrel Hill and late night coffee shops and <laughs> things like that. So you know, Kelly can, can stay with us. But we're going to talk about robots today and how we can use bots in the classroom to empower and engage learners. So Tom, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. We're excited to get going, and, and we're going to talk more about your role with BirdBrain Technologies, the Finch robot, and some of the other things you've been working on and how everything got started. But we'll start in the same place we do every week with the win of the week, so something good that's happened inside or outside of the classroom. And because we like to make our guests squirm a little bit, Tom, we're going to make you go first with your win of the week. All right, so I think my win of the week is the, it's more of a win of the month, but it's the continued expansion of our Python with Finch robot course. So uh, this is something that we launched last month and we had hundreds of teachers sign up for it immediately. It happened so fast that the Infosys Foundation, which is funding the distribution of the Finches, uh, kicked in funding for 150 more. So we are continuing with that. So I think that's, that's more than just this week, but it's definitely a, a big win and it's been yeah. great. It's, it's, going to be great to see everybody using those robots to learn Python. That is awesome. I, th I wonder if that has anything with this, you know, this whole push of, uh, what is it, the TIOBE index or something? Python's the first time in 20 years has surpassed mm -hmm. Java and C. So, you know, having bots that run Python, Sean and I are always like, woo, yay! <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly. That definitely helps uh, people understand why we teach Python in the classroom, because it's so versatile and you can use it for so many different things. I mean, sure, maybe you could squeeze a little bit more performance out of something like that's closer to C or, or uses a, a framework that's optimized heavily. But Python has that optimization to go from, I have this idea about how I want to make my robot do something to it actually doing it, right? It doesn't have to be done in nanoseconds if you can figure out how to get it, get the code and get it working fast. I mean, it, it is the perfect language to introduce students to because not only is it, you know, compared to something like Java or C, easier to learn and has kind of cleaner syntax, but it is used all over industry and all over the world by professional software engineers. So it's not a toy language, right? It's something that everybody is using all the time. Um, so yeah, I, I, I'm all on the Python bandwagon. <laughs> <laughs> that, that makes us very happy. When we started this three, four years, once it's, been, it's our fourth year now and of teaching Python in the middle school. And I, I was in shock that we're doing this. Everyone kept asking us. So, you know, it was hard not having uh, manipulatives that use a lot of Python at, you know, that we knew of at the time. So it's, it's such a great move that there are more things out there like the Finch. All right, so Kelly, would you like to go next? Yes, I have a really fun win for myself. It was a personal goal. We embarked on, um, I embarked on the AWS um, Udacity scholarship. What was it? Uh, machine learning scholarship course in June 25th. And it ends October 11th. And I finished my quiz. I'm not sure what I got on the score because I don't tell you until October 25th. But I finished it. It was 
forever long course. It said it was only supposed to be 11 hours, but it took me two months to complete. And I did it. And I took the quiz. It was a 30 minute quiz. And I had to take uh, machine learning questions and OOP questions. And it was just a huge personal goal for me to actually go into a quiz and from AWS and go, oh, I pretty much know all this stuff. So um, huge win I, just to get it done. We'll see what happens if I'm one of the 425 out of what, 40,000 people that took the course. <laughs> I'm not crossing my fingers, but just doing it was was nice. So, Well, and it's a huge accomplishment because, um, you know, when we first started working together three years ago, you were learning coding for the first time, not just Python, but how to code. And to go to the point where you're now taking AWS courses in machine learning and deep learning is a huge, you know, huge level of progress. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty awesome to see. Yeah. I'm not sure I can write my own models yet, but I can use some. <laughs> well, you can wield them, right? Like that's yeah. the most important thing. <laughs> Something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so for, for me, this is the big win this week has been the return to soldering in the iLab. So we've been doing a lot of uh, work with our classes. Kelly's been working with her sixth grade classes, our seventh grade classes have all been back in the iLab. We had to take a hiatus last year from soldering, primarily just because of proximity. We couldn't guarantee safety and, and social distancing in the iLab due to COVID. And this year we have some new protocols and some new ways that we can handle it, some better understanding of how COVID is transmitted that allows us to be in closer proximity. And so our students are back in, the, in our innovation lab they're using soldering kits. They've been making a really cool kit that Kelly found mm -hmm. that is a an RGB LED with three potentiometers hooked up to it and a battery. So it's all analog, right? Super yeah. simple circuit, great for building skills. But then when they're finished with it, they have this RGB LED that they can, you know, that they can light up and change colors on it. And we're using that as a lead into teaching RGB color theory for other applications. So when they're using a circuit playground with a NeoPixel on it, we can talk to them about that red, green, blue mix and doing that digitally versus doing it analog with the dials on their potentiometers. So it's such a great natural fit. I think this is the, the best kit we've found so far in terms of how it fits into our curriculum. And most importantly, the kids love it. They <laughs> love the soldering. They love the hands-on, the focus. It becomes like a meditative state for them that they're just so hyper-focused on, on soldering and getting that perfect solder joint. And it's so much, it's so much fun to do. And even when I'm sitting there trying to help them desolder stuff that they soldered in backwards or, you know, with way too many soldered globs and everything, we use it as a way to teach about making mistakes. And I keep telling them like, look, the only way I know how to fix this is because I've made this mistake too. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's such a, it was such a good find. Um, and they're not say locally, but the kits are made in California. And they're a little bit more costlier than the mass produced ones that we were using before, but they are super quality. It was called the, um, it's learn to solder, solder. We'll put it in the show notes, but the hue octagonal board or something, it, it was just great. And just to be able to show them the four prongs on the, the led and talk about that. And, uh, it was, it's good find. Good find. Yeah. That's, that's I mean, that sounds wonderful. That sounds like the kind of thing that's going to stick with those kids for a long time. And it probably not surprised, unsurprisingly, I am a big proponent of hands-on learning and tangibility, right? Even with coding, um, because I think that for many kids, like making something 
work in the real world is, is what it's about. It, it, it makes the connections in their mind in a way that a virtual environment doesn't. And, and so I'm glad that we're getting back to that. I mean, I think that was the big, well, not the big loss. That was one of the losses of, of last year in school. Yeah. And, you know, on a, on a side note, on a teacher note, end it with soldering because then they leave computer science for the quarter going, oh my God, it was so much fun. <laughs> and so they tell everybody it was the best, the best class. We don't want to leave. And I'm like, yeah, they forgot about all the crying that happened seven weeks ago. <laughs> and they take home this little gadget. They've got an actual artifact from it. It's not just a file that's on their computer with some source code. It's something that sits on their desk or on their dresser and they look at it and they think, think good, positive things about what they learn in computer science. So that artifact is also really important. Thank you. So we have so we'll, fails. We'll go in yeah, we'll go in <laughs> reverse order for the fails so that Tom has a little bit of time to, to figure out what he wants to, to share. For me, the, the big fail is, is really the fail of Google Colab in K through 12. So I am really disappointed. Google changed a lot of their education policies on September 1st, and I think it was done in a less than transparent way for educators. There's a lot of things I love about Google and a lot of things I love about their products, but I think this was poorly handled. Um, essentially, what happened was that Google changed their policies around their workspaces for education and what apps could be made available to students under the age of 18. And one of those apps that was affected by this because it wasn't in the set of Google apps that is in this admin console that you can specifically enable for students under the age of 18 was Google Colab, which we have been using extensively for teaching computer science. It was a big part of our curriculum this quarter already for students to explore, submit assignments. And Unfortunately, it wasn't like it all went away at once for all students. Some students had it working, some students didn't. When we look at it in our admin console for our workspace for education, everything looks enabled and turned on. So for some students, it simply didn't work. So I have been spending the day going through and excusing assignments for students who simply could not access it, could not finish it in time, couldn't get the, the assignment done, and it's just been a big fail. Um, and I'm really disappointed. <laughs> I mean, if anybody from Google's listening, like, I know you can do better. Like I've seen you do better. This was not it. Yeah. So I hope that it comes back at some point, but in the meantime, we're going to have to refactor all of our assignments to make sure that they are running independently of Colab and that we're not as dependent on an outside service as we have been on Colab. Yeah, that was huge because we had just made the switch this year. We used a little bit of it and we had the kids make their own, but we went in and um, we converted all of our, we have what's choice boards so kids can choose what activities they want to work on out of the, the ones that we give them. And we had transferred them all from Word documents into this collab with running code and I mean, hours and hours and hours and, and it was just a trickle, triple, trickle effect of kids going, I can't get into my collab. I'm like, I don't know what you're doing. Go to the tech lab. <laughs> Another person. It was just like, what? I had all. And, this, and the funny thing is, is we have, like Sean said, we had all of our copies from the students. So it was something that as, as an adult, you didn't really notice what was going on or you couldn't see the fix. So it was a huge fail. Wow. Yeah. But speaking of fails, we had another fail too. We've, we failed a lot this quarter, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so had a big fail with the circuit playground 
Bluetooth and it was, that was my fault completely. I didn't know that Adafruit had, um, Sean kept talking about putting files on the Adafruit and I was like, ah, okay, whatever. I didn't realize that it was the packages that the Adafruit needed to run the codes for the NeoPixels, for the, the board, the digital IO. I didn't know that you had to actually import. And he kept saying, should we just put the files? I'm like, no, the kids can do the UF2, the UTF file. No problem. But it. We'll get it. And I wrote all this, this choice board up and I didn't realize that the blue fruit had changed dramatically. I think it changed a lot from the little black one that I practice on. And we wrote up a choice board mm -hmm. and totally ditched it. I was like, forget it, kids. I'm taking that away. It's my fault. Don't worry. <laughs> but I have a huge learning mistake on that one. Test the board before you assign it. Yeah. On the, yeah. on the plus side, Scott Shawcroft from uh, Adafruit has given me some suggestions for how we can package our own UF2 file to flash those devices that would come with the uh, library. So I have some testing to do that to simplify and streamline the process a little bit. And then I think if we tweak the uh, choice boards, the instructions that we want them to follow and, and read, I think we'll be back on track with it and it'll make it a lot easier for everyone. But it was definitely something that, well, yeah, we probably could have done that a little bit better, you know, and made it a little bit smoother, but the kids have been persevering and making it work and, yeah. and they still get it to light up. It just means more work, uh, to, to get there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. I think, I mean, when it comes to that kind of electronics in the classroom, robotics in the classroom, um, you know, there's the challenge of designing the hardware and the software, but there's also the challenge of removing as much friction from the process for people who aren't electrical engineers and software engineers. Me. Right? <laughs> in, I would say that's actually the greater challenge. It's something that in the 11 years that I've been working on bird brain technology than on our products, it has been a slow and steady improvement over time of just like, oh, this is a pain point. This is a problem. You know, this could be made better. And we still have a couple, like you have to load firmware on the micro bit, you know, we could do that in house maybe, but it would be hard to figure. We haven't figured out how to do it yet. Um, but yeah, it's, <laughs> it's not I, a trivial yeah. problem. It's it, it's because not. also you want to make sure that there's, um, you know, you're maybe changing one thing to make it easier, but you might create three other problems of complexity mm -hmm. in other, other areas. So there's definitely that tension between the ease of use as well as the distribution, as well as the learning experience, right? right? Sometimes the, the easiest path isn't the most, uh, pedagogically sound. Yeah. The, the analogy or the, the phrase that I've heard to describe it, and it's not from me is to, that you want to have like good hearts and remove the bad hearts. So the bad hearts are like, you know, things that don't really add to the learning experience, but that are maybe trivial information that an electrical engineer knows that no one else really needs to know. Don't make other people learn those things because you don't. 100%. I, I, um, Sean loves hardware. I am a phobia of hardware. I, you know, the worst, the, the last thing that a teacher who is learning to code or who is not a CMU alum, you know, I was a bio, bio pre-med major. The last thing we want to do is have 25 to 30 kids screaming, I can't get that. And you know, and it's just like, you just want to throw the hardware out and just go back to putting pretty graphs on, you know, on the, on the editor, because in the end, those are easy. The code, when you're starting to get into code is the easier thing to fix. 
for for some of us, me. Um, but trying to figure out like change the wire, change the cable, check the date, you know, so many things, so many things. So yes, I hundred percent agree. <laughs> and the, but the micro bit is awesome. So thank you for using yeah. that. <laughs> well, one, once I saw it, I realized how awesome it was, and I'm like, let's build a lot of stuff around this because I'm not gonna replicate this. I'd rather just incorporate. Yeah. So, um, before you yeah. go, do you want to do your fail? I don't yeah. know. We want to give you your fail before we talk oh, about it. I oh, do want I, to talk about your bots, but. <laughs> I have one as a response to the pandemic and getting vaccinated and feeling like I can go out in the community again. I've started doing uh, student workshops and volunteering. And I did one in July that went well with Finches. And then I signed up to do a sequence of eight one-hour workshops with a cycling club for disadvantaged youth. And the first session was on Wednesday and we're going to build like robot legs out of hummingbird kits that model the muscles in the leg, since it's a cycling club, kind of mm -hmm. teaching both anatomy and robotics. Uh, and I just was underprepared. I feel like <laughs> I have, I I'm a little rusty, especially working with students. I mean, in my, in my background, I've mostly done professional development for teachers in the last five years. Um, and you know, it's 7 PM and they've been cycling for two hours. So they're kind of tired. And we got to the point where they were all connecting to the robots and they were all moving servos. But what I should have done was bring a bunch of printables because you know, the area that we're in, I don't have a projector. It's not a regular classroom. It's like literally like a bunch of tables in an indoor cycling place. Um, so I should have brought a lot of printables and maybe thought a little bit harder about what happens once they connect, because they got to that part pretty fast. And then I had sort of 20 minutes of running around trying to teach each individual group more instead of doing, you know, as a whole. So yeah. I have learned from that and next week will be better. <laughs> <laughs> That's a hard one. Definitely. Especially when, when you're in that situation, when you're trying to run around and solve everyone's problems and. It turns into this, uh, this downhill slope of everyone lining up for your help. And yeah. that's one of my classes this year. Sean always laughs this one class because they, as soon as they come in, it's like 10 people in a line at my desk. And I'm like, I miss Zoom. <laughs> so <laughs> bring, bring back Zoom. <laughs> go away. Go sit down. Go sit down. Go sit down. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a hard, that's a hard lesson, but it's always good to see. And you can reflect on that learning experience. So, yeah. I mean, I think, I think next week there were a few kids who'd done some scratch programming who actually figured it out very quickly without much help. And so I'm going to recruit them to help me also in, in addition to bringing more material. Nice. Very nice. So why don't we uh, jump into our main topic and we've kind of been hinting at it throughout this, the wins the week and the fails the week, but why don't we take a few minutes just to introduce you and, and who you are the company that you that you've created and the products that you offer just so we get a sense of of what you're bringing to education and how that relates to to teaching and python my official uh, title is founder and ceo of birdbrain technologies and birdbrain technologies mission is to inspire deep and joyful learning for all students through creative robotics and so we do that through the robotics products that we provide the finch robot and the hummingbird robotics kit and those came uh, directly from my doctoral work at Carnegie Mellon. So I, I spent quite a while at CMU. I went there as an undergraduate and a graduate student, so 11 years total almost. 
Um, and the research we were doing at the time was all about in the, in the case of the research that led to Finch, it was about developing a tool for, um, computer science education. And this was in the late 2000s. So it was focused on high school AP classes and college introductory freshman level classes. And that led to the Finch robot. And then the, um, the hummingbird came from a project called arts and bots, which was all about providing kind of initially it was about providing an alternative craft-based after-school robotics activity. But as teachers started using it, it actually became more about integrating robotics into the curriculum um, in kind of upper elementary, middle, and high school. Uh, and that led to the Hummingbird Kit. So in 2010, I was graduating, and um, we had these two research projects that had shown success in classrooms, and I decided to start BirdBrain Technologies to commercialize them launched the original Finch robot in 2011 and the original Hummingbird kit in 2012. We're now at this point on generation three of the Hummingbird and generation two of the Finch with the new Finch having come out actually during the pandemic. So in, in late 2020, and it's been really interesting, like as an evolution of the company, as I said, like my background is very much in engineering. My undergraduate work is electrical engineering, not computer science. I was actually turned off by a lot of my computer science classes in the beginning, which is part of the reason I think that I like that I'm interested in, in providing tools for computer science. But as we've grown, it, it's been interesting to see the progression from what I would consider kind of early adopter teachers using the tools because, you know, I wrote technical support and documentation that was kind of written for engineers and should I, you know, I, I didn't have that much background in like curriculum design, but as the company grew and as more people started using them, we were able to hire a lot of people in the education space to kind of really design good curriculum and good learning materials. And I would argue that at this point, materials are, are one of, or perhaps the biggest differentiator in terms of what we provide, we provide professional development courses for teachers. We provide lots of curriculum examples. Um, and we also think about the classroom when designing our products, right? So from a software perspective and a hardware perspective, what works in the classroom is what we're aiming at, not what works in somebody's, um, home, you know, we don't really sell into a consumer market. We sell into the education market. Uh, yeah, so I'm yeah, that's a, that's 15 years in a very very pretty nutshell. Yeah. And our experience in our classroom is we've worked, um, pretty extensively with the Finch robot. One of the things that Kelly and I designed last year, um, because we were using Lego kits to do the competitive first Lego league mm -hmm. in our middle school. And we made the decision at the start of last school year during the pandemic that we weren't going to be engaging in competitions. And so mostly Kelly, but I helped, um, put together this amazing exploratory program for robotics where it was all in the classroom. We could control the experience in terms of who was working with which robots at what time and keeping social distancing and, and all of those things that we needed. And we did everything from exploring, you know, electrical engineering hardware, like here are components, sensors, things like that are, that are foundational, um, and, and doing some coding with them to doing some prototyping. But one of the things that was a kind of a big hit for us was the Finch robot, the Finch 2.0 when we got it, uh, was something that was 
was well engineered, right? So we could rely that it was, it was not some, you know, uh, some kit from Amazon that was put together for, to hit a cost and build materials, but it was designed for a classroom and it had enough activities that were engaging for the students that they could really see and envision what they wanted the robot to do. And I think, you know, my, for example, my favorite feature is the fact that you have that little, you know, rubber uh, stopper that you can pop out and put a, a marker in there and draw on the table and they can see where their robot is going and moving and it helps them with their design and intentionality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I agree. So the other thing, and, and a lot of, a lot of listeners always ask us to share our curriculum and because we did something similar to your hummingbird kit. We, we, we hodgepodge, we had so many parts from like, I don't even know, or we, whatever we had, all those parts, yeah. tons, like literally boxes and boxes of LED servos and cables. So we started trying to put together these kits that kids can have in a plastic bag that no one else could touch. And we started throwing servos in there. Sean printed out, you know, uh, 3D printed um, linear actuators. And we kind of did with your your hummingbird in a <laughs> little bit of a haji pot. It wasn't as, as good as some of your products that you guys produced, but it was something that we could do. We could we could get it out. And if anybody's looking for a curriculum, I love I love it. I've been watching your your website just spin through the hummingbird activities. It's it's something that once you get your kit students, teachers in, in low-income schools can still do all these projects. You have the guitar where you have these little lights and a stoplight. I mean, even the, the, the stars, you know, you can start learning mm-hmm. about astronomy. So whoever your curriculum designers are, I'm, I'm a curriculum designer from years past and I love building curriculum. So well done. Um, it's just like one of these things that everyone's asked us, you know. Share share what you do, and I'm like, oh, we don't have to go to bird brains. <laughs> <laughs> We're not allowed to share what we do. I mean, we share a little bit, but we can't give our curriculum out at being where we are in our schools. So it's pretty cool. Yes, yeah, thanks. So tell us how this started. Like, so you know, you I think you and I were probably at CMU at least for a few years at, at the same overlap. And you're an undergraduate electro, electrical engineer. How do you go from being an undergrad electro, electrical engineer to thinking, I want to work on, you know, improving the education space with robotics? So, so was there a moment that that happened, or were there kind of a series of events or a mentor? How did that take place? Yeah, I think. Um, so even as an undergraduate, I was interested in democratizing robotics. So like I was in the Carnegie Mellon Robotics Club and eventually became the co-president of that club. And we, we developed like a standard platform. This is pre-Arduino and started a course called Fun with Robots, where we had something like 50 CMU students build a robot with our kind of standard platform. So a- almost what you guys are doing with, you know, hodgepodging materials, um, and so I was interested in the educational applications of robotics, even, even back then. Um, the first couple of years as a PhD student, I worked on something completely different. I worked on a robot that, um, balanced on a single bowling ball, like this, it's called a ball bot. Um, and that was theoretically interesting, but I didn't see the applications in the time scale that, that I kind of learned about myself, the time scale that I was interested in, right? So I, I learned something about myself in that process, which is that 
I'm not that interested in basic research myself, where the impact could be decades from now. I would rather work on something where I can see impact even in the research process. And so I naturally kind of gravitated toward a lab at the Robotics Institute called the Create Lab, which is all about creating um, or finding applications of robotics technologies to empower communities of practice. And it's all about working with those communities in the design process to figure out, okay, how, you know, as, as technologists, how can we design something that helps this community without necessarily just imposing a tool on them and saying, oh, this, we've, we figured this out for you guys. Here you go. Um, you know, that's, you, you need that bi-directional feedback. And so the projects in the lab at the time were educationally focused, which I also, because of my background was already interested in, in. And so I started working with teachers and students to develop the things that became the pinch and the hummingbird. Well, it's super cool. I, um, I do, I do what I do every time we, we have these podcasts. So I, I spy on you on the internet and I pulled up your, uh, dissertation. I, I love this, um, piece that you put in there in emerging technological domains that contain educational potential partnerships with educators and content creators at the very beginning of the design process may lead to educational relevance more quickly. hundred percent, hundred percent, because you can, a lot of people try to design things. Mm -hmm. And have never been in a classroom, yeah. you know, or they try to make ways that kids or teachers should be in a classroom and haven't been in the classroom in decades. Mm -hmm. So 100% is that partnership. And that's what makes, you know, the product. You have to know that if the finch, you know, we don't want it falling all the time, but if it drops, it's not going to splatter into a zillion pieces like our Legos, <laughs> you know, so you have these durable things, you know, that's what I love about the BBC microbate. They get thrown around left and right. And I think I've only lost a button maybe three or four times. So being able to work hand in hand with educators to see what they need and how you can change it quickly is, is impressive. So that, you know, I was only got halfway through. It's a very long. Yeah, <laughs> halfway through is pretty impressive. <laughs> I skim read. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's like three or four hundred pages. So, <laughs> so as you were as you were going through this design process and, and working with educators and working through curriculum, what were some of the things that emerged that were kind of most important or critical to designing for education versus designing for other fields? And we've alluded to durability, which is mm -hmm. especially important in, in middle school ages and elementary ages, but what what elements came out? Like I noticed, for example, that the the finch is very much influenced by an actual bird, right? So it looks bird-like. It has that kind of those characteristics and features that help students relate to it. But are, was that something that was like discovered? Was that something you designed for branding or because it was actually helping in the classroom? Well, so with, with the Finch, I mean, this, the newest Finch is sort of a refresh on the original design from an aesthetic perspective, but it still has those bird-like elements. Um, but the original robot we had an industrial designer sketch up several different designs and we were already working at the time with a group of something like 20 high school teachers as, as well as a couple of community college faculty. And we sent the designs over to them and asked their students and themselves to kind of rate them. And they came up with these combination of like a, a race car or 
well, there were nine designs and the ones they gravitated to were kind of this race car and this finch, um, this very bird-like robot. And so the final design was sort of a merger of that feedback. Um, so we definitely went out and asked people, and I think the aesthetics, you know, are important. I think, uh, it's very much intentional to make it something that is attractive and, uh, can be anthropomorphized so that you can kind of make a connection with it without making it too much like a kid's toy. So that, that was the other thing, right? At, at least the initial research was all about high school students, but even with the Finch too, we were really imagining something that could be used from kindergarten to college and where, you know, a, a 18 year old would, wouldn't be like turned off by it because it looked too kiddish and a five-year-old would still be engaged with it. And so making that balance, I think was really important. And then the other, the other piece of the original kind of aesthetic thinking was around gender, right? We don't want it to be gendered in one way or another. A lot of robotics stuff is kind of male gendered. If you look at, you know, so we weren't going to call it like the hawk or the raptor or something aggressive. We weren't <laughs> going to put in too much of an aggressive like styling. Um, but you know, we don't want it to be like pink either, right? Like the, that's sort of stereotypical female. Um, so there's, there was a lot of thought given to the aesthetics and the design. Yeah. Well, I, I like, um, well, I always tell people it reminds me of the war of the worlds, those big silver, you know, the silver things that come in. And I'm always like, every time I think about that, I remember that movie. And the first time, like I really thought about bots when I was little watching it. So not that it's silver, not that it's like coming mm -hmm. out to get you, but it does have that kind of nose in the front end. So it's pretty cool. I, the, the other thing I really have to say and going on back when Sean was talking about putting the Margarine, one of the first things we noticed and we appreciated after attending, um, we went to the CMU Robotics for Lego um, Mindstorms back in, mm -hmm. when did we go? Whenever, three years ago, four years. 2018, I think. 2018. Yeah. And it was very frustrating for Sean, not for me, because um, he wanted this precision 90 degree turn and it was killing him. And you know, and he kept, and everyone else is moving on and not, he's my partner. And I'm just like, it's fine. No, it's 89.6 degrees. And I was getting very frustrated. So the first time we plugged in the fence, the first thing Sean does is make sure it turns exactly the angle that it was supposed to. It did really well. So he was quite impressed. So, mm. and it came from CMU. So he was even more in love with it at first. So. <laughs> but it does have a great precision i would like a... i would like a chance to defend myself on this one <laughs> um so like in in movement and navigation especially with a lego competition like errors are cumulative right so mm -hmm. over time if you have errors in variability it will grow over the course of it what's important to me is that students shouldn't feel frustrated by the fact that the robot won't drive to the same place every time. You know, if they can get it to within a certain amount of, of precision, then they can focus on actually solving the problem instead of trying to do what I did, which was to just get it to do the same thing twice, mm -hmm. right? And so I think, I, I think that that's something that the, the Finch does really well. And I have to say that the new Lego Spike Prime does really well. So mm -hmm. that's, that's one of those things where it's like, you want to get rid of the bad hard, right? Getting yeah. it to drive in a repeatable fashion is a bad heart, but the good heart is being able to navigate and put together all the pieces. So 
I, I apologize to Kelly many times over the last four <laughs> years for putting her through that. But uh, but I, I now learned that about myself. Is I, that's one of the things that I look for is is removing that variability and the cumulative error so that the students can focus on what is actually really valuable learning in the process. Yeah, we, we sweated that uh, quite a bit, the movement of the finch and trying to get it as, as accurate as is possible while keeping the, you know, the cost to a reasonable amount. Um, and that is actually something that came from feedback from the original finch robot, which was tethered. And so because it was on a tether and mm -hmm. the reason it was tethered came out of the reality of like technology in 2010 and actually was a direct consequence of, of designing for the classroom versus the home in 2010. But for the new Finch in 2020, we were like, yeah, we can definitely make this untethered now. So now that we can make it untethered, let's make it really accurate because clearly everybody wants that. Everybody's asking for that um, from our feedback from the original Finch. So we, we spent probably a year iterating on the motion algorithm to try to get it as, as close as we could. It's, it's really impressive. I mean, I think if, if you look at the, the price point of it, it has that reproducibility, you know, where yeah. students aren't, if you can get to the point where they're not really noticing too big of a vari variance in it, then they're able to move on to the, solving the next problem. Yeah. And it's, uh, just for the cost, it's $139, which is really impressive, um, versus our, no offense, Lego, $350 kits. But, uh, you know, one, because I know we're going to short, cut short on time, but one of the other things what I really love for us in our in our curriculum, a lot of times I go into turtle module and that's my second unit. And mm -hmm. moving over to the Finch, you can still talk about, you know, here's your object. We're gonna name the Finch Birdie or or whatever. And it's a it's a little bit of a an easier move after I've done turtle because they get the idea. And I hate to say it, but if they can draw a star over and over again and make that darn spiral on a desk because that's all they make is with the turtle over and over again the spiral so when they could do that you got to win you've got to win so kudos on that yeah. so tom what's what's next for bird brain like i mean I, I don't think we should we should expect to finch 3.0 right away right like there's <laughs> <laughs> definitely some room to run there but um what's next uh, more curriculum design more more lessons professional development new bots you know, where are you spending your time and attention when you look ahead now? There's uh, there's a lot planned for the next year. In the shorter term, we are releasing a, a small AI machine learning module to go with the Finch that will work in Python and in Snap, which is one of the blocks-based environments. And it's been pretty fun to design that so far. You basically, like this, you, you use Google Teachable Machine to train image model, like models to classify images, models to classify sound and then also poses. And then you can use that in Python to control your Finch. So you can speak to your Finch through the computer and make it drive. If you've, you know, if you've taught the model three words, you can usually say forward, backward, turn or something. Um, or if you can, you know, do the image processing, you can like basically have different people's faces, make the Finch do different things. So that that's fun and that's coming up pretty soon. I've already mentioned the Python with the Finch robot pre-professional development, but I definitely mentioned that again. So any U.S. public uh, and charter school teacher in middle or high school can take this free course and also receive a free Finch with it. And we've got something like 110 robots left to give away. 
And that's um, through funding from Infosys Foundation USA. And then related to that, we're on, on a similar note, um, our loan program should be starting back up in January. So the loan program is something we've been running for a very long time, since 2013. And in the loan program, essentially, um, teachers and librarians in the U.S. can apply for a flock of robots for, you know, for a few months to catalyze some computer science activities. It's completely free. We pay for shipping both ways. Uh, and we have been using mostly Finch ones in the loan program so far because we've had supply chain issues, which have kept us from transitioning that over to Finch two. Um, but we expect those to clear up soon. And then we will have a thousand Finch two robots in the loan program and ready to go out to schools, um, to use. So that that's exciting. I can't wait for that to get back up. It's, it, it's sort of been running in, in kind of an altered state all through the pandemic, you know, pandemic, and then the transition to Finch two, but I'm excited about it getting back to kind of a more normal, uh, loan program. And then the, I mean, the thing that we're trying to launch next year is not, it's not computer science related, but we're creating some math manipulatives for elementary education that are, um, uh, digital manipulatives. So they're tied to apps that you use on a tablet or a computer, but then you are also manipulating cubes or dials and you're kind of getting exercises and feedback from the app about what you're doing. Um, so. We'll see how that goes. I'm, I'm excited about that. That's called Owlet. And um, we don't have anything like on the website about it yet, but uh, look for it probably sometime next year. There's a That's video what... or something. I saw something out when I was Googling. And saw, so I saw it was like a tray of cubes, maybe. Yep. Yeah, yep. yeah. So it looked pretty cool. I know I know we love manipulatives in the, the lower years because just clicking on an app, doesn't do a lot for that processing from the short term mm -hmm. to the front to the long term, but using your hands and crossing over your body, we know that that helps students really retain that knowledge. So that should be fun to look out for. Yeah. And we've had, uh, we had a, uh, an NSF grant that we split with Carnegie Mellon to develop this. And it was the same process of working with teachers, iterating. We actually had pilot, uh, in, in classroom pilots last year with it. Uh, with six teachers and over a hundred students, and they managed to use it despite last year's school year's restrictions. Wow. So we didn't get quite the the research study we expected, but we got an interesting research study that shows some at least that it it can be used in a lot of flexible environments. Very cool. Very nice. Well, we are just about out of time and and need to wrap up, but. Um, I did, uh, for many of our international guests, I did want to point out just a, a couple of things. Um, so Carnegie Mellon is located in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which is also the site of the PyCon in, I believe it's 2024. Uh, they're going to be bringing it back. So um, we'll all pile on Tom to show us around and, and give us a, a, an introduction to the city that he, he loves and the robots that he adores. So, Tom, we, we really do want to say thank you for taking the time to talk with us about all the work that you're doing. Um, for both Kelly and I, we've been using the Finch robot particularly, and I think we probably need to get some hummingbird kits just to, to be able to play. Um, but we can, we can definitely say that 
the uh, the experiences that we've had have been very good for our students to learn and to grow. And we appreciate all the hard work that you've been doing over the last 15 years to make that happen. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for inviting me on. And, and it's just great to hear that, you know, it is really all about the experiences of the students in the end and having them have, you know, deep, joyful, positive experiences. Awesome. Just out of curiosity, do you ship to, do you, is Bahamas is not the USA, but do you do any, you do shipping to out to Bahamas and anything like that? Yeah, we do international shipping. Uh, we also have resellers. I don't think we have one specifically in the Bahamas, but we have resellers internationally as well. We know we, we, we try to like look out for some of our friends that have underprivileged camps or um, try to look out for the community. Those are building um, access for everyone. So just handing it out there to our listeners and stuff. So, yeah. so oh. if you'd like to continue the conversation, if you have some experiences that you'd like to share, you can always follow us on Twitter at Teaching Python. I'm at SM Tiber on Twitter and on Peloton. So if you want to cycle with me, that's the place to find me. I'm not on there very often. So maybe a little nudge is all I need. Kelly is at Kelly Pered on Twitter. Our website is teachingpython.fm. And you can always send us a note through there. We love to get listener emails. Uh, we are also on Patreon. Um, there's a link to the Patreon page in our show notes. We have a lot of wonderful Patreon supporters who keep the, the podcast going and keep it funded. So thank you to all of you. Uh, I don't think we have any extra announcements and I have students about <laughs> ready to get learning here in just a minute. So I'm going to sign us off by saying for Teaching Python, this is Sean. And this is Kelly signing off. 